the only thing that's sad is that our business is kind of like the circus. We come to town for two or three months and we put on the show and woo, you're on the ballot. And then we go to the next town for the next circus. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Ted Blazak, runs a company that helps gather political signatures to qualify candidacies and ballot initiatives. He has a long and eventful history in the business, and he made for an excellent guest. If you are interested in political entrepreneurship or the often overlooked signature gathering part of the progressive ecosystem, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ted Blazak of Trailblazing Canvassers. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Ted, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Hello, my name's Ted Blazak, and I'm the owner and founder of Trailblazing Canvassers, a 25-year-old field company where we do signature drives to qualify ballot measures, and we also do door-to-door direct voter contact, as well as other field programs, including all your traditionals, visibility, phone banking, volunteer recruitment, etc. How did you originally conceive of an interest in politics? Um, great question. I think political junkies are often just born that way. I started my first campaign when I was uh, 13 years old. By the time I was 18 and I could first vote, it was for the candidate whose campaign I was managing, who was running for town selectman, and he was the first non-Protestant elected to the town selectman board in 350 years. Where is this? Hingham, Massachusetts, South Shore of Boston. John O'Brady, the first Irish Catholic non-Protestant ever to serve in Hingham. And we won by half of a percent of a vote. And I managed that campaign. I ran a big grassroots door-to-door effort. We had the best GOTV you could ever imagine because the community was fairly segregated. There was this one peninsula with one road in or out, and that's where all the working class Democrats basically lived, all the ethnic folks. And we set up almost a barricade on Election Day at that road on the peninsula, and we had 20 people with signs and stuff. And every time a car drove out on Saturday – it was like, oh, Tommy, hey, how you doing? You Have you voted yet? The school's right over there. Come on, man, I'm on you. And so we had enough people that we knew every single person driving off the peninsula. And it was trash day, so everyone had to drive the trash in the dump. And we got like, you know, like 80% GOTV out of our two targeted precincts. And even though we lost on all the other four, we carried the day. And that was my first time I ever got to vote for someone. The strategy of corralling people on an island might be a useful one if we can find another way to apply that. <laughs> you got to have just the right geography. <laughs> so, But it sounds like you kind of got the bug really early. Why do you think yeah. that was? Well, I grew up poor and in public housing. I saw a lot of injustice in my childhood. I just always wanted to make things a little better. Even as a child, I kept volunteering, doing, you know, raising money for Jerry's kids or, you know, helping out with all the school fundraisers and things like that. 
I was also uh, an argumentative little bastard. <laughs> I was always challenging authority as well. So it kind of went hand in hand. And essentially, I started doing this when I was 13 and I'm 56 and nothing's really changed in 43 years. I'm still doing the exact same stuff. <laughs> Did you make your political work part of your application to college? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, and I went to the American University in D.C., and I'm sure that's part of the reason why they accepted me is that, you know, I had like letters of recommendations from a state senator. I was his debate advisor, you know, the selectman, a congressman. I was already very connected by the time I was 18 in Democratic politics in Massachusetts. Were you one of those people who knew most of the senators from the states and like pay attention to that the way people pay attention to baseball players or on teams or things like that. That's right. And you know what? I, in, in that sense, I was a real oddity for my peers because, you know, I liked football, but I read the newspaper twice a day. In those days, he had a morning edition and an afternoon edition, and I read it religiously. And my father was wonderful. He was always more than willing to engage in debates with me at the dinner table. He was so good. And now I play the same trick with my own kids where he would be very Socratic. He would pretend he didn't know anything about the subject matter. And then he would, oh, explain that to me. And then he would just prod me with questions. So I have to say I was lucky to have a wonderful father and stepmother who loved me very much. And I was lucky to be surrounded by a good community of activists, progressives in Massachusetts who just enabled me to go with it. And yeah, once you get in your blood, you, you're just hard to get out. Uh, I don't know about other middle-aged consultants, whether or not we all wish we went became bakers or attorneys instead, but here we are. And now we're all old dogs and can't learn a new trick. In my case, I'm passing the business on to my kids. So Fairly soon, a new generation is taking over. And then I'll slide into retirement, hopefully. <laughs> How did you go from being a student at American into the, the political campaign world, which you obviously already inhabited to some extent? But what, what did you do after college? Well, in college, I was a horrible student, but I majored in internships. And because they were easy grades, but it got me on the hill. And I interned at the DNC and the congressional office and Paul Simon for president way back when and a host of other places. So I got a lot of great experiences. But if I were to pass on any advice, which I do now to my children, it's meet people and cultivate those relationships. I didn't do that. I was very slash and burn. I was just very motivated by whatever campaign was in front of me and I, I, I didn't maintain my connections. So I kind of regret doing that. But it was it was it was a very good it was it was great experiences. I've worked on hundreds and hundreds of campaigns now, grassroots candidates, ballot measures. They're wonderful experiences. They really are. You feel like you're really contributing to the world. And when you see the impact of your actions, it's a deep sense of satisfaction. Clearly, you ended up starting your own firm. Had you worked for a firm like that beforehand? No, this was very much an accident. I was working for the Oregon AFL-CIO and the Service Employees International Union and the rest of the labor table in Oregon on and off for a couple of years. After I graduated, I worked for Iowa Democratic Party and several campaigns for about a year and a half just as field staff. And then I went to grad school. And then after that, I just decided to relocate to Portland. And then I started volunteering and then being paid to work on several campaigns. And then unions started hiring me for their political seasons. And um, I, one of my first gigs working for the AFL-CIO and SEIU Council was to run a signature drive for a ballot measure campaign. And so for three or four years in a row, I, I, I ran these signature campaigns. And my boss, Tim Nesbitt, who was the president of AFL-CIO, great guy, wonderful mentor to me, he was really impressed with what a good job I was doing. And they were having bad experiences before he showed up. So he, he kind of took care of me and helped me keep getting work. 
And then one day he turns to me, he says, God, I wish we just had a vendor that we could hire to run our signature dries. And a big light bulb went off. And I was like, I'd love to be that vendor. And so I started a firm. And because I already had a good reputation in Portland, Oregon, I managed to pick up clients, including outside of the labor table. And I stayed in Oregon. What was the firm called back at the beginning? Democracy Resources. It's a good name. Thanks. Did it it go through? Uh, I mean, I know you have a new name recently, but did it go through other iterations along the way? Well, first I had one (laughs) very briefly that was called Mutual Aid. And that was with, I I started the very first company with a buddy of mine, but he was really kind of a flake. So then I went to Democracy Resources and then I went to Democracy Resources of Oregon. And I really just stayed in Oregon for about 10 years. And when I wasn't on a campaign, I was having a baby or fixing up a house. I started gathering more and more business out of state because my word of mouth and my reputation was really good. And I had this really, really good year when I was only 46. And for me, I work and I save money so I can have time to spend with my kids. I don't really buy flashy cars or pretty clothes or anything like that. It's just money equals time. So I got really lucky. And when I was 46, I retired. And I sold the company to someone and they ran it in the ground. So I was 46. My kids were in elementary school. I had a budget. We bought a pretty house. We moved out to rural eastern Washington. I became a city counselor and happy retired guy. And I was just volunteering for the library. And I started a little trail group and I was happily living in this rural farm life. And then I got divorced. And it turns out divorce is expensive. So then I had to go back to work. But I waited a few years because I had to deal with all the emotional and financial mess of it and wanted to focus on my kids even more. I came back about two, three years ago and I remarried and I have a beautiful blended family now. And we have seven children between the two of us. And we're very lucky because all the kids get along and they love both of us. And it's it's a really beautiful experience of being a happy household. And I said, you know, I, I, I need money. I need to go back to work. So I reincarnated our company and called it now uh, Trailblazing Canvassers. And I now run the company with my adult, uh, she's 29 now, daughter, Allison, and her wife, Larissa, and my other daughter, McKenna, and my son, Jace, are also helping to run the company. My other daughter, Allie, also helps out, and so does my wife, Kelly. So now, when we have campaigns, it's this whole family experience. The Kids live in Oregon and here in Florida with us, and um, we all, but we all get together and we converge and we work together, and it's just wonderful. It really is. You get to have uh, board Zoom meetings that end with, okay, love you, talk to you later, bye bye. It's just great because it's not like I'm working for the company to get money to live. It's like we're having this shared experience that we really enjoy because we enjoy each other's company and we're all working towards the same goals. And And I'll tell you something else, as you may have noticed and your listeners have, that in political campaigns, sometimes your coworkers aren't so trustworthy. And there's a bit of uh, opera where people are trying to stab each other in the back and somehow take someone down. They build themselves up. Horrible experience on campaigns, but frequent. It's not like that in a family business. There's no competition amongst ourselves. And we're always covering and helping each other out. So now work is a real pleasure. And we're trying hard to build a company to last generations and expanding and trying to take on new types of field services and things like that. And that's exciting. But it's really... 
really less of a job and more of a joyful experience now than it ever has been. For those people who aren't steeped in it, why is a firm needed to gather signatures and do field work? Explain that a little bit. That is a great question because it is perhaps the simplest and oldest of all the political activities. Uh, Going door to door is, I'm sure, tens of thousands of years old. And it seems so simple. But it's almost like if you're building a, a deck onto your house, you can do it. It's pretty simple. You can read the instructions and follow them. But the first couple of times you do it, it's not going to look as pretty as it does the third or fourth time. There's still a learning curve. There's still a lot of tricks to the business. And most of those involve the retention and the training of field staff and making sure that they're effective and that their work is very valid. Signature gathering is unique on a petition for a ballot measure than any other aspect of the political industry because it's extremely quantifiable and proven whether or not you've had success or not. There's plenty of consultants who can advise a candidate on talking points or messaging or ad delivery their candidate can lose the election and they can say, well, I gave you the best advice possible. It's just circumstances and it's unquantifiable really why you lost or why you won or whatever. But with signature gathering, there's exactly 100,033 valid signatures on this petition and it's been approved by the government. So I have to really be quite exacting, quite accurate. And I have to have some very good systems in place. There's the recruiting and the training of the staff and maintaining levels of productivity, being statewide, making best use of the turf, best use of the time, best use of the labor pools, best training of the volunteers, best merging of the volunteer effort with the paid canvassing effort, the validity, building a database of everyone who signs. We send a thank you note to everyone who signs a petition, being able to add on things like lit drops and lawn signs and visibility, hitting the right events. It's all very, very, very basic, but there's all sorts of little tricks along the way that make it efficient. And I have seen time and time again, people try to qualify a measure in-house or all volunteers, or they think that all the vendors are the same and they wind up getting burned. There's a lot of failure rate and a ballot measure qualification industry has a reputation for being somewhat shaky. But also more to your point, why do you need to do this? Because it's very difficult (laughs) to put out the hours that are necessary to gather the signatures or to do the door-to-door canvassing. There's often just not enough volunteer capacity. If you have money, then you can hire a field staff. And as door-to-door face-to-face contact is also the most effective way for a campaign to communicate its messages and identify its supporters, it's become very much a standard part of any serious political operation. And if you can have a vendor that has a great deal of experience in providing a quality field program, it's greatly advantageous to a candidate or a ballot initiative campaign to contract with that vendor than to do it themselves. So underlying all this, of course, is the reality that in order to get a ballot initiative on the ballot, you need a certain number of signatures. That's just the rules that you're playing under or often for candidacies as well. How much does it matter the content of what you are trying to qualify? Is it way easier to qualify something that makes sense and is popular to the audience that you're going after? Or could you qualify pretty much anything? The more salient the issue is, the more it's understood by the voters 
with a simple explanation, the easier it is to gather signatures on it. Let's say you had something that was like raise the minimum wage or legalize marijuana. Concepts that everybody understands and there's usually majority support for. Those we call cart stoppers because someone will stop their shopping cart to walk over and sign your petition. Those petitions, we can get 20 signatures an hour from one, one canvasser standing at the right uh, in front of the right library or post office. And, and then we can gather all, let's say, 200,000 that are necessary pretty quickly. But let's say you have an issue like end death penalty. That's also something very salient that everybody understands. However, its support is limited to certain pockets. And I have found on statewide measures on campaigns like that, the first 30 or 40,000 signatures are pretty easy to gather because, again, it's salient and it goes fast and you're working the right neighborhoods. But then after that, if the issue isn't also popular across the rest of the state, it gets difficult. The other factor is if you have an issue that uh, this ballot measure will change the tax code so that property residents will only pay X percent over the course of the next five years, blah, 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 blah. The one that needs an explanation. That's a pain in the ass. That petition is only going to get maybe 10 signatures an hour. And it's because of the explanation. And in that instance, what helps the most is who the actual circulator is. People sign people's petitions because the circulator who's asking the voter is nice, polite, and makes eye connection and gives them a couple of, when they first say no, says, oh, are you sure? This just makes sure we get it on the ballot so we can all vote on it. You don't have to even vote for it, but this is obviously worthy of consideration. A lot of the petitions we work with are confusing. We have to try to put it in simple language and we have to just ask twice as many people because another factor is less and less people are willing to stop and talk to signature gatherers out on the street corner in front of the library. And it's because of the rise of homelessness and people get just getting hit up too much on the streets these days. So that's why we also have turned to doing a lot more door-to-door signature gathering, where once the doors open, the rate of rejection is much lower. We also find that that's very significant because we go door-to-door with a Palm Pilot or iPad or your phone app where we're going only to registered voters. And what we do is after we visit them at their home, the next day we send them a thank you note. Thank you for signing the petition to qualify. And then we have the circulator sign the postcard with a personal touch like you had lovely rose bushes. It was great to meet your dog. And then the result is, is that you have someone who now is like, yeah, I signed that petition. I'm one of the reasons why that's on the ballot that we're all voting for. I made that happen. And I got this thank you note. And I got this piece of literature when I also met the kid who had the petition. So essentially, that voter has now had four positive contacts with your campaign. And we're able to give you a database of all 200,000 of them that signed the petition. And that can create a base of support or expand one in the signature gathering process, essentially pre-campaign. I can't help but ask you a little bit about the technology behind this, given where I come from. I had talked on this show back in 2022 to a guy named Jay Costa, who had a company called Equal, which was software for signature gathering. And he was trying to raise the game of firms like yours and other people trying to do this. Have you run across that or what do you use? There's all sorts of gimmicks and lovers of technology are anxious to try to apply it to almost everything. There's all sorts of things where you carry the voter file on your phone. So you're out there canvassing and you look up their name to see if they're a registered voter. You click on it and instantly create a database or you have some sort of signature recognition software, right? 
I have found that those things do not work. They're quite terrible. I avoid that type of technology. I actually go old school. We don't have our canvassers check their own work, especially not out in the field. I have a central validity office where I have trained people who have been with me for a long time and an election lawyer to oversee them. Uh, who's also been with me a long time. And we examine every single signature up against the voter file. And then we take a subset of all those signatures after they've been verified, and we take them down to the Board of Elections and states where we can do it. We also do a subset with a signature-to-signature match to double-check our own system. But we also get our voter file directly from the Secretary of State's office. So it's enormously accurate to the moment we're starting. There's just no way to really do ballot measure qualification unless you're doing a full in-office validation where you're scrubbing off all the illegibles or out of districts and you're getting a very, very, very firm count. Uh, That is why our firm is now averaging validity rates between 80 and 85%, which is about 15 percentage points higher than the rest of the industry, which means there's less signatures that you need to gather and there's a cost savings as a result. There's a lot of people who try to do things gimmicky where they try to let circulators work on their own, come in once a week with their signatures and report their hours. We don't do that. When you come and you work for me, On your first day, you're going to spend three or four hours in the office role-playing, getting trained on the issue, knowing it frontwards and backwards, tested by a manager. And then for the next two or three days, there's somebody out in the field holding your hand, keeping a direct eye on you to make sure you know the job that you're doing and you're doing it accurately. And the reason why that's very important is because we don't just hire people who have circulated petitions in the past, but we hire volunteer activists and true believers. The first signature that anyone ever gathers on a petition is unquestionably the hardest signature to gather because you got to get over that social hurdle, that fear of putting yourself out there and asking in public, hey, will you sign my petition? And so we make sure that we go out in the field and that our new employees witness success. They see their supervisor do it in the right fashion. And then our supervisor turns to the new employee and says, this is what my daughter and my son do. They turn to the new employee and they say, see how easy it is? Now you do it. And then we stay with them for two or three hours. And then we have a techniques on how we do this more effectively and can do it with multiple people. But the idea is like, don't use the gimmicks. Don't use an app to run your staff. It doesn't work and it's just far less productive. What will happen is you'll hire a hundred people. You'll give them petition sheets. You'll give them the app and you'll say, come back in a week. And of those hundred, less than 10 will return. And most of them will have a poor amount of signatures. Now, if you have months and months and months and months to gather your signatures, you can do this method, basically a pay per signature method with no supervision or oversight. And the signatures will dwindle in and you hire 100 the first week, 10 will survive. The next week you hire 100 more, 10 more will survive. And you can get the job done if you have a lot of time. With our company, we can come in, make sure it's done right and done in a very brief amount of time. We pay our folks all by the hour, never by the signature. And we always pay a high living wage, usually between these days, between $27 and $30 an hour. And that's also because there's limited labor pools and we want to attract the best people for these temporary jobs that are inherently challenging and sometimes not fun to be standing out in front of a public library for 40 hours a week. However, we incentivize, we make sure they're doing their work correctly, a lot of close one-on-one direct management, 
And we kind of turned the whole experience into a summer camp for our folks. We have pizza parties if we reach goals. We have bowling nights. I'm really happy that at the end of our campaign, our staff is coming up to us and like, wow, we want to work for you again. We get thank you notes and stuffed animals. We maintain friendships and relationships with folks for years. And the only thing that's sad is that our business is kind of like the circus. We come to town for two or three months and we put on the show and woo, you're on the ballot. And then we go to the next town for the next circus. But yeah, it's good. It goes well. We have a good company. We have good morale, good effective workers, great managers, most of whom are my children. It's an enjoyable work environment the way we do it. And and I'm proud that we turn out such a very good product, that it's a leader in the industry. I can tell just by how you talk about it that you found an area that works for you. You know, obviously you've put a, a lifetime into it and, and it sounds very compelling to be able to pass something like that on to family. When one thinks about political consultants, the first thing that comes to mind is not the signature gathering maestros. It's the media consultants, it's the pollsters, perhaps it's fundraising consultants or digital consultants. Are you happy that you went down this path? Did you ever consider like a- another road in politics? I mean, we kind of joke that we're like the roto-rooter of politics. You know, I mean, they only call us when they need us and they ask us to come through the back door. (laughs) It's not stylish. It's not attractive. But, you know, we know how to do it and we're good at it and we enjoy it. So we don't really care about perception, you know. How is it as a business? I mean, clearly you did well enough, including that very good year to retire once and uh, doing well enough again, I assume, to have enough of a business that that would attract your offspring to it. But is that something that's gotten better over time as this industry has professionalized more? Or how do you see it in terms of a successful place to run a company? Well, this kind of relates to your last question. I remember once meeting with my accountant and telling him that, man, everybody looks down on me in politics. I'm like, you know, the bottom of the ladder in the consulting industry. And he looked at my tax return and I said, you know, I just feel filthy sometimes. And he he looks at my tax return and says, well, you can afford to buy a whole lot of soap. So (laughs) I wouldn't worry about it. I grew up really poor. And even uh, before I started my company, I was working those field gigs and and union organizing gigs that were, you know, paying the bills barely, you know, but you were being subsidized to be a revolutionary, basically. And then when I started my own business, you know, I started making real money. You know, suddenly I could buy a house. Suddenly I could make investments. And I was careful with the money. And I still am. And there is good money to be made out there if you're good at your job and if your reputation precedes you. And also, I'm often brought in at the last minute. And to future clients, my recommendation is hire us early, not at the last minute. Because at the last minute, it gets very expensive and honestly more profitable in a shorter span of time. One other big thing is, and I think this is goes beyond politics. When I was working solely for other people, my value was based solely upon their opinion of me. Whether I got a raise or whatever was another person's judgment. But when I owned my own business for the first time, the only thing that mattered were the dollar signs. And I found it to be quite personally liberating. And my entire attitude shifted and became much more positive because I was completely responsible for charting my own course. I enjoy that. So I would say to people considering getting a job for someone or starting their own business, consider that. It comes with risk and possible failure that will be all yours, but also with victory that could be all yours. Yeah, I I get that. I had a similar experience. I was not the greatest of employees either. 
Um, <laughs> you mentioned this point at, I think it was in your mid forties when you sold your company and doing that is potentially a complicated event in someone's life when they've put their all into building something and they change that into money, especially if it doesn't go so well as you indicated that, that they ran it into the ground because some part of that is your legacy and you, probably your employees and your clients and no one wants to see something that they've built uh, mishandled. Talk to me about like the decision to do that, what it felt like to watch it in someone else's hands. How was that for you? Was it a big deal or not? Yeah, you know, honestly, during that period and part of my retirement was I was terribly distracted with a failing marriage. Work, as you know, political campaigns are like about 52-minute conversations in a day, at least, or 100. It's just constant email, phone call, at least on my end, talking to just hundreds of people every day. And it was high stress, high rapid pace environment. And then I would go home and it would be even worse. It was a very dysfunctional household. So I was selling the business in part, not only because I could afford it, but because I wanted to rescue my family. And I was unable to do that. So I didn't really care so much about my business or my reputation because I was too consumed with my family's needs. It turned out upon reflection, that was kind of a mistake. I should have actually kept working, kept my company. I would have been happier not to see other people destroy it. And it probably would have wound up being very best for my family. Why do you think it didn't work under different management? Obviously, if they bought it from you, they didn't buy it in order to fail at it. They bought it in order to do even better. Why do you think they failed? You know, that's a very good question. Also, during my period of retirement, I, I consulted for some other folks who were trying to start a signature gathering firm. We were very talented, good people. And I've seen like, I don't know, at least a dozen other ex-employees or associates try to start a signature gathering canvassing firm and fail miserably. I think it's a couple of things. One is people actually underestimate the amount of work that's involved when it's just hours and hours and hours. And you have to just live in that office and, and be very connected to all these moving pieces and all these people and making sure that everyone's headed in the right direction. That's my job and I'm good at it and I enjoy it. Other people think things can be put on autopilot. They believe that if you go to a human being and tell them what to do, that human being will actually go and do that. Nay, nay, nay. You <laughs> must go back to that human being several times over and over and over and over again and make sure they're still on track and doing their job. I think that that I'm, I'm more willing to put in the hours and I understand just how much attention to detail there needs to be and how much management structure really needs to be in place. And then you got to have your levels of expectations of performances from people and being able not to expect too much and make sure you don't get too little. And the other thing that I do really enjoy about my business and part of the reason why these dozen people I know have failed is every cycle, I learn more than I knew the cycle before. And we have completely upgraded our operations over the last couple of decades. And then having that time off from work when I did retire, I had a time to kind of reflect and let things settle in. So then when I went back, I knew, oh, I'm going to do this different. I'm going to do that different. In the first early days, our validity department was just taking a sample of 10% of everybody's work and checking it against the voter file. And now, mm -mm, mm -mm, where every single signature must be checked, you know, or we won't go forward with that project. It kind of leads me to ask about the competition. So it's a big country. There are an awful lot of states with ballot initiative process. There are candidates that need to be qualified. 
most places. When you look at the landscape of other firms out there, do you see firms that you admire? You mentioned that the that the reputation of the industry is not always strong. And we saw the Michigan candidates that didn't make it on the Republican side, which I kind of enjoyed. Tell me about how you see the competition and, and kind of the space generally. Politics is an interesting industry because it's cyclical. It's basically like in every other year event. So what happens is every cycle you have all these new companies try to pop up and think that they had a little experience last cycle and now they're going to make it. So now they're going to make it a mainstay of their operation. And, and, I, and then next cycle, they're no longer around. Here's the thing. Is in my business, when you screw up, you really screw up, right? That campaign is not going forward. You're the first major hurdle that they have to pass. Clients, if you make a mistake, are not too happy about it. They've lined up millions of dollars to go forward, and the first half million was just completely wasted on a bad firm. They often get sued and things like that, and reputation drives them out of business. There's a there's a firm in uh, Oregon who two months ago, a competitor, a very minor competitor, one of these guys who just got in the business, right, because he, he had a connection with a union, it was Osprey's the company, and it was Hovley, state rep Hovley. So they went out and they gathered signatures. They only needed 4,000 signatures, and they – go out and they turn them in and they have this big press conference and they say 90% of these signatures are accurate. We're so good at our job, blah, blah, blah. A week later, turns out only 35% of them were accurate. (laughs) It's so stupid, actually. It's a district within a city. And rather than go door to door within the district, they stood on street corners in the city. So lots of people were outside of the district. Sign the petition. And, you know, and that's something I know that's really kind of obvious, you know, through basic experience. But so anyway, he had this guy who started this. He thinks he's a budding company. You know, this is his first big contract. He makes a whole bunch of media about it to introduce himself to the circles of the state. And then he fails miserably. But not only does he fail miserably, because it's so poor, He now has to dig deep into his own pockets to make things right. So now he spent a year on this and he just lost money. I can see why that would be worth a chuckle on your side. But there are people getting their ballot initiatives getting qualified elsewhere, right? There are other good firms, particularly on our side, I assume. Well, (laughs) I'm incredibly biased, of course. We're a little bit different. In that we do the strong direct management and the other firms tend to uh, do more close to the pay per signature aspect. So it's kind of apples and oranges of a little bit of a comparison. If you have, you know, a year and you don't care about paying a living wage and you just want to get the signatures as cheap as possible, then a pay per signature operation may be the right approach for you. Because it requires no management. It's just, I'm going to put out an ad that tells people I'm going to give them two bucks a signature and they show up with them. You're going to find poor validity, but if you check them and take your time, you can probably get there more economically than an hour campaign. Unless I can carry two petitions, in which case I am cheaper. There's big firms out there that have been doing this for a while. I don't really feel impressed by them because I know how they charge their clients and sometimes it's excessive and I know how they treat their employees. We have a real different environment with our company. So uh, I feel we kind of stand alone. On the other hand, there are at least five, six good, well-known national firms out there. Um, on the other hand, it it's just new people show up and disappear all the time. And some of the older companies are starting to deteriorate as well. I assume that somewhere in your many years of doing this, you've had a 
ballot initiative or candidate who didn't qualify, where you couldn't get the signatures. How did you deal with that? Yeah, you know, early on, I had a bad experience where uh, we had two initiatives uh, for a casino in Oregon, and we're gathering the signatures together, both petitions going out, and one petition qualified and the other didn't qualify. And it was something like 65 signatures short. My attorney who wanted to sue, and he works with my company on a regular basis. So, and that is very advantageous to have full time attorneys. He wanted to sue who? Well, he wanted to sue the Oregon Secretary of State's office. The disqualification of certain signatures based on duplicates, they had this in Oregon, they weigh duplicates disproportionately than other invalid signatures. We wanted to sue on the basis of that. It was a tough campaign. They started really late and it was pouring rain nonstop for two months. It was a real struggle. I will say this though, the same client then hired me the following year to gather signatures on the same ballot measures. And then they certainly qualified that time. A friend of mine said that when you bet on the NCAA tournament, don't bet on the team with the perfect record. Bet on the team that lost one or two games. And they know what it's like. And unquestionably, we learned a hell of a lot from that experience. And it affected us deeply. Who will you not work for? Oh, well, I won't work for anything that's anti-people. I won't work for anything that's anti-choice, anti-woman. I won't work for anything that's that restricts people from being people. I have two bisexual daughters and one gay daughter, and I love them dearly. And I will not accept anything that interferes with their ability to enjoy life. We're also rather pro-environment, pro-public land. We come things from the progressive side. We're happy to work for a lot of industry stuff. And we love a good casino. We have progressive hearts and we have lines that we won't cross. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? Oh, you know, first of all, you're a great interviewer. Thank you for that. Yeah. And thanks for asking that question. And I do enjoy your podcast. And I'm starting, I've only listened to a few episodes, but now I'm going to go back and listen to your catalog. No, I think you kind of covered it all. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, yeah, you too. Thank is you. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, you know, beyond the signature gathering for ballot measures, we do a lot of uh, voter registration, door-to-door canvassing. And in the door-to-door canvassing, that's an area where technology is really starting to come into play now in very interesting ways. I'm so old that I remember organizing canvassing. I'm older than you, so be a little careful here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> you don't look it. You don't look it. Well, then you remember having a giant stack, a sheet of paper that had the voters' names on it in the streets you were supposed to. I remember printouts with. back when I did a little bit of volunteering in Massachusetts, even in the early nineties. But I go, but I certainly, I certainly started paying attention to politics in the seventy-two presidential. So. Okay. All right. All right. right. Well, and and we don't have to go door to door with clipboards, with large reams of paper, with all the voters on them, right? Or cards, flip cards that you would walk through. Instead, everything's on your phone and there's a great, you know, map that all the red houses that are highlighted are the ones to go. And it's very easy. It makes things faster. And that's great. And I mean, like, that's a basic technology change. Another one is just simply the advent of the cell phone. I remember when I started my business giving all my canvassers quarters so they could go to a payphone and call if they had a problem and needed help out in the field. But the newest thing is now the AI and the chatbot. We can go door to door now with a tablet and ask a voter an open-ended question. What do you want to tell Senator Smith about his tax policy? And then we can hold the iPad up and record what the voter says. And then we can have a letter follow up, go to the voter from Senator Smith that uses their own language. Whose technology are you using for that? 
I uh, don't know off the top of my head. We have the few that we're looking at. Um, but, but basically the idea is um, we can now communicate to the voter using their own exact language and how that fits in with Senator Smith's positions. So the voter feels like they're talking to Senator Smith and Senator Smith really understands what they're saying. That's pretty interesting stuff. And also we're able to do more peer-to-peer contact now because of social media. In fact, we go door to door, we establish a deep connection with the person, we get their email, we get them on social media, and then we get them to carry the message to their neighbors and their friends. And it's the same reason why we always try to put a lawn sign up in someone's yard. There's a whole debate about lawn signs, not worth the money or whatever. But that lawn sign is one neighbor saying to all their other neighbors, I endorse this guy or gal. And if you don't care about the election, but you like me, maybe you'll just vote for this person. Can you imagine what this firm might look like in 20 years? What would you like to see it turned into by the next generation? Wow, that is such a wonderful question that honestly, I haven't given enough thought to. I mean, my care is for my children and, you know, their future and our company. And we're diversifying our business so that we're doing things like we're buying Airbnbs and a couple of retail so that our business is more solid and less cyclical. But on the political front, one of the things that we're expanding into is uh, if you're a candidate and you're running for Congress, rather than hire three field staffers and have to coordinate them yourself, you can just hire our company and we have an entire field staff program that we can put in place. So we're looking to expand into other areas outside of politics and in politics we're looking to expand our canvassing services and our field services we like to get more into voter registration we're looking in other things like we're teaming up with pollsters to do door-to-door surveys and some scientific research firms as well well it's been fun to talk to you you too let you get back to your work That was Ted Blazak. He's at trailblazingcanvassers.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.